Some of you came into church perhaps and thought, what in the world are they wearing red vestments for on the first Sunday after Christmas? And those of you who know that in the last 40 years in the liturgical renewal, we have labored to say that it is important for us every Sunday to understand the Sunday as uh, a principally the commemoration of the resurrection. And so the transferal of feast days to the Sunday is to be issued. That is to say, don't do it. Unless it's a feast of our Lord, like the Epiphany or like Transfiguration or Christmas, but uh, not to do it just willy-nilly so you don't transfer the fe- or, or keep the feast of Mother Cabrini's shoes on Sunday if it happens to be the day. Today is the 28th of December and it is the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And uh, normally what the custom would be would be to transfer that to the nearest convenient or available date. But in the Ordo calendar, in the notes, it said that keeping uh, holy innocence is to be preferred. In the other calendars, they kept the first Sunday after Christmas. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to just compromise here. And I'm going to read the collect for Holy Innocence, the opening prayer. We're going to wear the color for martyrs, which is what you wear for Holy Innocence. And then we'll read the readings for the first Sunday after Christmas so that we can thematically connect to what I think is important during the Christmas season, but also have the opportunity to say something about Holy Innocence. I don't usually like to do it because it's kind of a downer. And Christmas is supposed to be happy and we're doing this. But there's some days in the church's calendar right after Christmas that are kind of heavy duty. St. Stephen is a martyr. Then we have John the Evangelist, who was sort of the messenger of all this. He was not a martyr. And then we have the Holy Innocents. So there's some days right after the joy of Christmas and the birth of the Christ child where we face some things that are not too pleasant. And maybe just once in a while, since I'm kind of liturgically and emotionally and spiritually a glasses-half-full person, it might be good, though, to say why we celebrate the Feast of Holy Innocence this time of year and what in the opening prayer that we prayed uh, are some things that may tell us how we're involved in this process of um, moving the world forward in a way where the things we're commemorating today don't happen anymore. So in my sermon, I'm going to say some things about holy innocence. Then I'm going to say some things about the Christmas affirmations, which I repeat every year and I believe are very important. And then to say something to you briefly about the introduction to John's gospel, which we read every first Sunday after Christmas. In fact, on Christmas Day, we read part of the Johannine Prologue, and then today we read the whole 18 verses uh, of the Johannine Prologue and why that is an important thing. And maybe we can put it in our hands and make use of that too. The earliest record that we have of the celebration of the Holy Innocence, in other words, when I say that, I mean it's earlier than this, but the establishment of this in liturgical texts is 505 C.E. A.D. Okay? 
So sometimes I will use I use interchangeable nowadays the, the, the terminology BCE before the Common Era, CE the Common Era. Okay, so in scholarship, uh, that's what's used out of ecumenical solicitude for a people in other faith traditions. So we do that, but um, BC and AD are okay too. So uh, you decide, but I'm uh, being somewhat politically correct here when I use that terminology. 505 CE is when we see in the calendars the Feast of the Holy Innocents. In the Middle Ages, you had an understanding in the church's mind that these three feast days that came right after Christmas were referred to as the Companions of Christ. So what they felt happened was that we celebrate the birth of the Savior, the source of the redemption of the world, and now we introduce through these uh, less than happy circumstances the cross so that we have some idea of uh, what Jesus is coming in here to redeem and how these things have uh, uh, developed over time in terms of the church's public prayer. And remember, I've said to you more than once that in the Episcopal Church, in our tradition, we believe that what we pray, we believe. That that's the first source of the development of our understanding of how we think about God and Jesus and the world and humanity and morals and everything else. It flows out of our common worship in the community of faith. So that's what we, we do on this day. The Holy Innocents used to be a commemoration of the murder of these little boy children as and, and they were commemorated as martyrs for Christianity, which is kind of odd since, you know, when it happened historically, it wasn't quite what you might define that as. But then we begin to see that not are we going to commemorate them as martyrs as much as we pray on this day for all innocent victims. And it's a good time to pray for children that are abused and neglected throughout the world. And so commemorating it on, on the Sunday after Christmas, I thought we could at least file that by title. But I'll tell you what I like about this collect. I don't have it right here in front of me. But there is a line in there where uh, God is asked to frustrate the will of tyrants. And you and I have a role to play in the world in doing that. That wherever we see uh, overweening power grabbing and whenever, wherever we see any kind of uh, uh, move to power and control by people in leadership or groups, we have to say no to that. And we have to say yes to the fact that uh, this is not God's will for the world. We have seen in this last year in this country some of the most egregious uses of power and tyrannical behavior of one kind or another that we have seen in a long, long time. You know, it's nothing new, is it? But there it is. So you and I are here to frustrate the tyrants. That's one of the things that this tells us something about uh, in some way. How do we cooperate with the divine initiative? We find the ways and the means through the political process, through praying a lot. My morals and ethics professor in seminary said, I'm just going to pray against it. 
And sometimes that's what you need to do, and that counts for something. One footnote about the whole final about the holy innocence before I get to the affirmations. There's been a lot of new historical work done on this, and various traditions within Christianity have ratcheted up the numbers that were the victims of Herod's uh, uh, outrages, right? So the Syrian church says it's about uh, 64,000, and another one of the Eastern churches says 14,000. Uh, I think that if, in fact, this is absolutely an historically accurate story, there were about 20 kids killed in Bethlehem by the reckoning of the people who do this kind of work. doesn't matter, it's 22 men, isn't it? So the point of it being, though, that uh, the early church said we want to commemorate this festival because we can see that what Jesus brings to uh, our understanding of leadership to, in that thought world, what kingship might mean, what a kingdom might mean, it is not a place where those things happen. And the leadership is right out front in insisting that they don't. So we always err on the side of generosity and compassion and sympathy as being the way in which we understand our common life together. And more to the point, the Savior is going to teach us in his words and works as we move forward something about how we cooperate with this, that the kingdom of God and its values are things that you and I have some responsibility for. That the redemption of the world is something that uh, we're part of and God wants us involved in this. The four affirmations. What does Christmas affirm? The season. First of all, uh, it affirms the goodness of our humanity. The default position for Christian people is that God made the world and called it good. God made each one of you and called you good in spite of all of the things that you may have had uh, uh, weighing against you in your life, that is the default position for Christian people, and we understand that. So God made the world and called it good and expresses that goodness through his unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love as the starting point where we now begin to move forward. The second affirmation is that following on that, you and I can achieve the highest of our human potential. Where did I get these affirmations from? I got them from, uh, he just died within the last year or two, Dr. John McQuarrie, who was the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford for a long time, and one of the most important Anglican theologians in the 20th century. And he talks about the Feast of the Incarnation, or the Feasts, and he speaks about these affirmations obliquely, not in a list. So I took them and that's where they, got, they came from. The highest of our human potential. And this isn't some commercial message for the human potential movement, you know, for Est or something like that. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you this. Who was the guy who founded Est? Werner Earhart. Werner Earhart was an Episcopalian. Oh. And... The, the, the interim priest at Christ Church Sausalito, before I got elected rector, had this big blowout thing there with Werner Earhart. 
I don't know what the connection was. So I got approached by one of Earhart's minions who wanted me to marry him. I mean, I was already married, but you know what I mean. So he, I, I agreed to do this. It was a big mistake because Werner was there. And uh, I want to tell you, that's not the kind of human potential that I'm talking about. <laughs> what we're talking about is that we are made for a purpose, that we're called to respond to being made in God's image, <coughs> and by being and modeling the, being the best human being we can be to the world. People have this idea that there's religious or Christian behavior and a Christian person, and then there's just ordinary non-Christian human beings. It's the same thing. You hear me say over and over, the spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit, given to God in love, as Thomas Merton said in one of his journals. And so that means that you and I need to model the highest and best of what it means to be a human being. You know, when Christians were searching around and said, how, how should we understand morals and ethics? What is it that we, as we're living, where, where do we get this in the Bible? What does it mean to be a moral person? They didn't sort of invent Christian morals. They used the moral views that they, that, or, the, or the ways of behaving in terms of morals and ethics, the pursuit of the good that flowed out of their own philosophical milieu and thought world, right? That's where they came from. So Paul will quote lists of virtuous behavior from Greek philosophers. And one of the early people who had a big influence on Christians was Aristotle, who talked about the virtues, right? So we said there are virtues that we know about anciently that people have lived by to pursue the good. Erete in Greek means excellence. So pursuing the good would involve these things. And we see in retrospect as we heard and saw the Savior that what he had to say about that is affirmative of the deepest and best of our humanity. So that's what we affirm on Christmas, the importance of the humanness of Jesus and by extension how you and I can achieve the highest of our human potential. Affirmation three is the possibility of being joyful. And you've heard me say this over and over again, joy isn't some giddy hilarity that we sort of cultivate and, and uh, go around with a kind of... Uh, a grin on our face and a perpetual optimism that is uh, absolutely unfounded. It's being realistic about our ideals. And for Christians, joy is the sure and steady confidence that the difficulties, the ambiguities, the uncertainties, the adversities of life are going to come into surer and clearer focus with regard to how you now are given the tools to cope with those realities. About 15 years ago or 16 years ago, an outfit in the Episcopal Church who was funded by the Church Pension Fund, a good outfit, I have to tell you this. The Church Pension Fund did a survey of the clergy of the Episcopal Church to determine how, in their view, the clergy, is, the clergy who were the healthiest, what was their functioning like and what did they do 
And I, I, I read that survey, and uh, this can be extended to any, anybody and anything, I think. One of the things that they said was the healthiest sample of the clergy that we uh, surveyed and talked with were all people who were realistic about the church. In other words, they were realistic about their idealism. So they weren't cynics but they were realistic about what it was that uh, they understood to be true institutionally. And that probably is true with regard to how you and I should think about or work towards in all of the things that we uh, uh, hold important, you know. It's good not to be cynical, but it's also good not to be crushed at the first moment you find some kind of disillusioning thing appear where you want to... Uh, uh, just say I'm giving it all up, right? And the healthiest sample of clergy were people who were able to to not do that. So joy may have something to do with that, that sure and steady confidence and the commitment to be in it for the long haul, you know, because in the end, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's how do you maintain the strength, the stamina, the internal self-regulation to be able to rise to the challenges and the opportunities on a daily basis and not get ground down. This is true in your work, in your marriages, in your relationships, in your friendships, in your religious commitments. And the final affirmation is that Christian people are to be peacemakers. And the Savior in the, in the Beatitudes said that people who are peacemakers are blessed. And, of course, when he used the term peace, he would have used the Hebrew word shalom, which is a far bigger category than merely peace in a sentimental sense. It is a category that it, it has many meanings. Uh, on um, Christmas Eve, I read them. I'm going to read them to you again. Completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. Where'd that come from? It came from a Hebrew-English dictionary where you look it up and they say, here are the variety of meanings for the word shalom, peace. So peace is a big deal. And can't you see that it is important for Christian people to be advocates for peace in the world in the way that we traditionally understand this, but also that these qualities that I have read to you have some consequence for our internal emotional and spiritual states. So when you become a peacemaker and you ask God to help you show you the way and you wish to be clearer about your purpose and what God has in mind for you, you're going to have to think in terms of how you bring some sense of internal peace and serenity. How you're able to control your demons. How you're able to push to the side the committee that lives rent-free in your head. <laughs> right? So you need to say that this is something that is, is part of my peacemaking activity. This is not navel-gazing and me, me, me. It can easily become that, right? Opera singing, I, 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 me, me, me. It has something to do with learning to have the right kind of self-regard. 
And in the course of that, you need to be a peacemaker. Because you could also, as Paul would say, be at war with your members because you're paralyzed by your guilt and your remorse. As the result of what it is that you've done. And God's peace passes all understanding. So we affirm that on Christmas. These are powerful, great and powerful truths. The reading from John's Gospel is sort of the great theological statement about what it is that we believe about uh, God becoming a human being and how certainly one strand in the New Testament tradition, the Johannine tradition, uh, understood and talked about Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus meant using categories that would have been understood by the people who heard them. And one of the great things that is used here is the idea that the light is overcoming the darkness. And the darkness doesn't just mean, no, you know, nighttime. It means uh, things that are obscure and hidden or our own cluelessness. It is the illuminative processes of God at work in the community of faith and the illuminative processes of God at work inside us. So the light of Christ shines in our hearts and shows us the way. So this light that is being talked about here is both internal and it is external. It's lighting the way like a flashlight or something and showing us how to proceed. Father Thomas Keating would say, the light is shining on Christ's redemptive work where he has the potential to free us from the emotional programs for happiness that all of us use on a regular basis that surround security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. That those are the three areas that all of us struggle with on a daily basis in one form or another. All of them are necessary for survival on one level and all of them can grab hold of us in a way that keep us from becoming the best human beings that we can be. And the redemptive work of Christ is the process that frees us from the slavery of those three emotional programs for happiness. Finally, we hear Jesus referred to as the Word. And like Shalom... The word in that introduction is logos in Greek, which means word. But it can mean thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, standard, or organizing principle. Which is my favorite one. (laughs) I think about, every time I read this, I think about... The Savior being the organizing principle, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. You know, looking to Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, you hear the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That is the absolute way I think the the author of John's gospel is trying to get us to to see. So this week, uh, think if uh, you have an opportunity to frustrate the will of tyrants Big tyrants and small tyrants. You know, all of us are tyrannized by a whole variety of things, you know. I was just thinking of a sermon, I shouldn't say this, John Chrysostom, the great bishop of Constantinople, 
preached a sermon on the wedding scene at Cana where Mary turns to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus said, woman, uh, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. (laughs) And John Christensen said, at that moment, our Lord released his mother from a tyrannous affection. (laughs) Sometimes that may be necessary, right? Who knows? In big and small ways. See if you have the opportunity to do that. And remember that we're called to find ways through volunteering, through being advocates, through uh, our our voting, through any way that it is possible to be on the side of of, uh, those who are badly treated and neglected. Children and people who are on the margins. That's what this feast is all about. Think about the four affirmations. Remember that God made you and called you good. You can be who you want to be when you ask God to help you. You can be joyful and you can be a peacemaker. And finally, uh, see if God's light has shined anywhere in your heart to uh, make you see better what it is you ought to be doing and see if you can find the means to do it. Amen. Amen. Cafe.